0: Good morning. How are all y'all? If you would, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 12 to 16. And we could kind of look at this text this week and the theme of our time of studying the Word is being uh, a time of thinking carefully about the nature of church growth. Um, you all know that uh, we, we as a church constantly, I'm being facetious now, constantly focus on church growth. And that uh, that's why we're so large. And that's why we put a church on the west side of the community. Because we knew we would grow here and we needed 220 acres for our campus. And of course, this is all a joke. The way we got that 220 acres was a divine accident. Um, But we do think about growth. And in preparing to read our scripture and think about this issue of churches growing today, I thought about the fact that really today most church growth happens because churches build a building and then they have to take care of the mortgage. And probably the most widely used tool of church growth in America today is a new church building or an addition. Because then everybody feels the need to have other people in the pews with them, helping them bear the burden of the money. I mean, you understand this. You know, you build, and then everybody says, well, we've got to have more people to pay for the building. And so then all of a sudden we become what? Evangelistic. Well, that's not exactly the biblical model, is it? And uh, so then I began to think this week, well, I wish we hadn't built. But there is a certain usefulness about a building. You know, it is nice no longer to have to be kicked out of the gymnasium and to have the janitor waiting for us to leave and to worry about what the superintendent of the Monroe County School System thinks of us and how much longer they're going to let us be there and whether IU's going to get the building and whether the Seventh-day Adventists. And you think of all the different buildings we've been in, there is something nice about having a building. But if our approach to church growth is to try to pay the mortgage on the building, that's what's called Pathetic. Because then it's not about Jesus Christ and about salvation, but it's about money. And there's already too much that's about money in America today. So let's look at church growth the biblical way. And we find it at the beginning of the book of Acts. This week we'll read Acts 5, 12 to 16. This is the word of God and it is eternally true. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets. And laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits. And they were all being healed. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so what has just happened? Well, if you have a Bible, you can look above and you can see that right before this is the account of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, if I tell you that Ananias and Sapphira is what happens right before this, then some of it makes a little more sense, doesn't it? Because what you'll see in our text is that it says what? At the very beginning... They were all with one accord. None of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And if you heard that, you would have wondered, well, why didn't they dare to associate with them? Well, now you understand. Some of you may not know the story of Ananias and Sapphira. In the early church, everybody got together to worship and to be instructed, just like we're doing here now. And Most of the people loved Jesus Christ. Most of them had turned their back on respectability in order to follow this man who in their own lifetime had been crucified. A shameful thing. But even in that group, there were some people who were hypocrites and who were there to make it look like they loved Jesus and had faith in him, but didn't really love him and have faith in him. And two of these people were named Ananias and Sapphira. They were married. Ananias was the husband. Sapphira was the wife. And at that time, it was common for Christians, because of their unity and love for each other, to live in something approximating a socialist way. Um, We read at the end of chapter 3, it says that, or excuse me, chapter 2, it says everyone in this church kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. That's why I say socialist. You know, they had everything in common, all things in common. You know, your car is my car. My car is your car. Your food is my food. My food is your food. Your home is my home. My home is your phone. Your home, your pension plan is my pension plan. And my pension plan is your pension plan. Your debt is my debt. Your student debt is my debt. And my mortgage on my home (laughs) is your debt. My credit card is your obligation, even if you don't believe in credit cards. They had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Notice it doesn't say as anyone had a legitimate need. Generally, needs are half legitimate and half illegitimate. But we don't read that they were picky uni and went through deciding who was justified in their requests and who who wasn't. We read that they shared and shared alike that those who had been stupid that the rest of them bore their stupidity and those of them who were wise shared the profits of their wisdom with the stupid okay this is the church this is our church this is what god does to our hearts right 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 somebody say amen ah some of you aren't saying amen now, along come Ananias and Sapphira. They're in this church where everybody sells property and then gives the money from the proceeds to those with needs. Ananias and Sapphira have some property, and they make a decision that they're going to sell the property, but that they're not going to give all the money to the church. Now, is there anything wrong with that? Now, if you sell property, you liquidate a pension plan, you can give none of it to the church. You can give all of it. You can give any amount you want or don't want, right? Ananias and Sapphira decided that they would not give all of it, but would hold some back. No problem, except that Ananias and Sapphira decided that they were going to lie to the church and tell the church that they were giving it all. So, the people assemble. Ananias makes a big show of it and comes up front and says, here are all the proceeds from our property sale." And the Bible says that God's Spirit, the Spirit of God, struck him dead. Because he lied to the Holy Spirit. Where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am also, says the Word of God. And so it's no small thing to lie to the church, right? And so Ananias is struck dead. Now, here's an interesting thing. In the old days, back in the ancient world, women don't show up. Because we all have been taught that back then, women were owned by their men. Women were possessions, right? But guess what? The woman shows up. Sapphira. She comes along and she comes to the church and her husband's just been carried out the door dead. And what does she do? She lies too. She says, here's all the proceeds. Sapphira, did you bring all the pro- Yeah, oh, this is all the proceeds. And there we see the feminist and egalitarian concept of the moral agency of woman. Because Ananias is also struck dead and judged. Now, we don't think about this much, <clears throat> right? But let's stop and think about it for a second. If women were in fact chattel and slaves and possessions, the way all the feminists tell us they were at the time, how is it that we have this record at the beginning of the Church of Jesus Christ of a wife bearing full responsibility for a sin that her husband obviously had led her into? If, in fact, women were just chattel, God should have overlooked her sin and not judged her for it. Because, in fact, doesn't the Bible say, Hus- wives, submit to your husbands in everything. And we all know who was the real leader in this decision. It would have been the husband. The husband would have decided that they were going to make like they were giving all the money, but not really give all the money. And the wife said, yes, honey. And so all she was doing was submitting to her husband. And yet the Bible says that God struck her dead. And this is a wonderful warning to all of you that, yes, we believe in wives submitting to their husbands in everything except when it comes to lying to the Holy Spirit. And then don't lie to the Holy Spirit because you will bear the judgment for your sin. You understand this. And so here we have a wonderfully feminist, egalitarian, moral agency of women episode in Scripture. And it results in her having the privilege of dying. The church does believe in the full stature of women. And the first thing that gives women is the right to be judged, just like men are. Now, they're both judged. They lie. They lie to the Holy Spirit because they lie to the church. They're judged and they're killed. And then immediately comes our scripture text. And now you know why it says in our scripture text, what? None of the rest dared to associate with them. And so what comes right before our text are the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. And we ask what effect did the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira have on the church? Well, their deaths affected three different groups of people in three different ways. The first group appears in verse 12. It says, At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And then we read, They were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. That's the NASB. The Revised Standard Version says they were all together, and the New International Version says all the believers used to meet together. It's hard for us to understand that the word accord isn't just something you sign, a bunch of words that two countries agree with their diplomats to be bound by. We think of accord as being conceptual, but here it really has reference to a place and to physical bodies. And the other two translations bring that out. They were all together, or the NIV, all the believers used to meet together. Now, where did they do it? They met in Solomon's portico. What was Solomon's portico? Solomon's portico was an extension to the temple, outside of the temple, that went eastward. And according to the secular Jewish historian at the time... It was uh, a porch outside the temple. Think of portico just meaning porch. It was a covered porch, all right? And the walls were 400 cubits. Now, how long is a cubit? Well, both a cubit and a meter, think of them as being sort of this, all right? And depending on what time of history it is, this will vary in its length because people will be taller and shorter, all right? At that time, a cubit was... a approximately the length from the tip of the elbow to the tip of the finger, people think, and probably about 18 inches. So if it was 400 cubits, all right, it was about 600 feet. Now, how long is 600 feet? Well, 600 feet is about two football fields. So here's this huge structure. It's covered, and that's where the church met. All the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade, the portico, the porch. So the first effect we see is that this dreadful sign of God's wrath and punishment did not cause the believers to fall away, did it? No, we read that they continued their habit of meeting together, of gathering in one accord. So, in other words, the first effect of Ananias and Sapphira is that it causes the people of God to be more unified and more faithful in gathering together for worship, for instruction, for prayer, to gather together to love God. Now, what about the second group? The second group, we see that the effect of Ananias and Sapphira's death on them was, verse 13, I noted it before, none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in highest esteem. So there were some who were so awed by what happened that they did not dare to join the believers. Who was it? Well, it was unbelievers, those who had not sincerely trusted in Jesus. No one dared to pretend faith as Ananias and Sapphira had. Now, this makes sense, doesn't it? If you see that the result of being a hypocrite is that you die, you're not going to be a hypocrite, right? Generally, it's a negative reinforcement, right? And so people at this time did not want to cop a posture did not want to play act did not want to dress up in a costume as a christian and so if you want to think about ananias and sapphira as being a meat cleaver it comes down on the hunk of meat and when it's done whoop! half of it's over here and half of it's over here and it's very clear Which half is which half because it's been cut in two and the division is clear, right? That's what it was like for Ananias and Sapphira to be judged. It's like God, the Holy Spirit, came down, divided people into those who didn't dare to associate and those who couldn't stay away. Now, which are you? Are you the ones who wouldn't dare come near, or are you those who can't stay away? And right here we run into the nature of the church in America today. Because you know what the church in America is today? It's an institution that is entirely committed into blurring the distinctions between these two groups. It is the purpose of the church today to keep the meat cleaver from dividing and to blur everything up into a mishmash so that nobody can tell who's trembling and who's embracing. That's the church today. How do you figure half the American people are evangelical Bible-believing Christians and that we have the filth we have on all of our television sets and, tele- and, and computer screens? How do you figure that we have 1.3 million unborn children being killed every year and half of us are Christians? problem today is that our elders and our pastors and our older women are committed to blurring the distinction between those who know God and those who don't. And so we preach in such a way as to allow those who don't know God to think they do. This is hopeless today. Thank you, Mr. Lane Bain. The way we preach blurs the distinction. The way that we meet and decide things in elders' meetings blurs the distinction. The, may, the way we handle membership blurs the distinction. Everything about it blurs the distinction. Everything. What we try to do is cover up whether or not you're really a Christian or not with nice talk and we all wear the same clothes and, you know, we lower the hurdle. And what Ananias and Sapphira does for everybody at the time is it raises the hurdle. Because the only way you get over that hurdle is by the power of the Holy Spirit. But today, Christianity consists in lowering the hurdle so far that everybody can think they're a Christian. But when we die, what's going to happen? all these millions and millions of Christians in the United States, when they die, what's going to happen? Will God lower the hurdle? Is God interested in changing His character to conform Himself to the membership lists of churches in America today? Well, I I would have this standard, but I can see America is very, very fat and wealthy and complacent, so i better... This is a whole host of evangelicals from America coming into heaven right now. And so I better bring my standards down a little But And then who's he going to raise them for? And so look at Ananias and Sapphira. Look at this text of Scripture. This is not me talking. This is the Spirit of God. And we see that those who belong to God are unified and are devoted to joining together in a particular place. Is the Church of Jesus Christ, and then the other group happens. What happens to them? What happens to them? The other group does not dare to come near, but holds them in high respect. I love it. Do you love it? That's what we want to see. What we want to see is the anti upped, the hurdle raised. The bar raised. We want to see things get to a fever pitch. We want the critical moment. We want heaven to be opened up so that we can see the truth about our own hearts. So that we can see the truth about our children's hearts. We don't want things a mishmash. Where in life do you want things a mishmash? I don't want my potatoes and meat mixed up. I want to know when I'm eating meat, and I want to know when I'm eating potatoes. I don't want my cookies in with my coleslaw. All right? I want things to be clear. I don't want the light to be a combination of green and yellow and red. I don't want it to be both a yield and a stop sign. I don't want the judge to announce that they're acquitted and guilty. And yet, when it comes to the church, we want people to be pagans and Christians at the same time. To live for this life and the life to come. To fear God and to not fear God. And so what? So the church today is pathetically weak. Why? Because the church doesn't have good wood. It's got rotten wood. The church has fiberboard. Now, how do I know this? Well, I know this the same way you know it. I remember being at a a church here in the community. One day, soon after I got to that church, a young woman came into my office, and she sat down and she was crying. Very pretty young woman, a blonde. She was in nurses training. And I asked her why she was crying, and she said, Well, she said, I was, uh, I was not able to come back to school. And it was, I think, somewhere around, I want to say the 20th of January. It was near the end of January. She said, "I, I couldn't come back to school because my parents wouldn't let me. And I said, well, why wouldn't your parents let you? And she said, well, she said they wouldn't let me because I wasn't doing what they told me. What were they telling you to do that? You wouldn't do and she said well they wanted me to have an abortion and I said what and she said well they wouldn't let me come back to school until I had an abortion and I said so you were pregnant she said yeah well the story came out she was in campus crusade and she met a young man in campus crusade and they uh, fell into sexual immorality and she became pregnant. And uh, so when she went home, she was pregnant by this young man. And uh, she told her parents, upstanding evangelical parents, church going people, her parents said to her that she could not allow a child to ruin her life and that they wanted her to have an abortion. And, of course, being a mother, she didn't want to kill her child. And she wasn't willing to do it. And so they said that if she didn't do it, they would not pay for her next semester of school. And that she was not allowed to go back to IU until she killed her child. And she held out for a couple of weeks. And then she gave in. She killed her child. And now she was sitting in my office crying. And that's the church in America today. Let me tell you something. Our churches are filled with women and men and fathers and mothers who have blood on their hands. And it's not figurative. It's literal. 1.3 million a year, over 50 million since Roe v. Wade. Who do you think having those abortions? We are. Our children. You go talk to the people that get paid to kill our children and they'll tell you that we're the ones that are in there. You come listen in my office and counsel with me, and I know you have had abortions. You have had your children kill their children. And so you have two choices. You lower the ante. You lower the bar. You lower the hurdles. And you talk about God's grace all the time. Or you think, you know, what's this about, God or us? And then you raise the hurdle. And so I raise the hurdle with this young woman. And if this scandalizes you, You don't know God. But here's what I did. I looked at her and tears streaming down her face. And you know what I said to her? I said to her, let's call her Susan. I said, so Susan, what did you do? And she said, well, what do you mean what did I do? And I said, what did you do? And she said, well, I did it. And I said, what did you do? Well, I did it. I said, Yes, what is it? And she said, I had an abortion. And I said, so what did you do? And then it got very, very quiet. And then she said, I killed my baby. And I said, that's right. You murdered your unborn child. That's what you did. Now, why would I do that? I did it because I wanted her to see her guilt before God. I wanted her to understand how she and I stand before a holy God. Do you understand this? And I said to her, and is God's grace sufficient for a murder of her own child? And then I read this to her. Comfort, O oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. If any man is in Christ, if any woman is in Christ, she's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And in that office that day, she learned the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. And she learned, I don't judge her. And I proceeded to tell her that I was her and she was me. There was no difference between us. You watch the way I drive a car? I am a murderer. And you can all smile at me about that. But Jesus says that if any man curses another man, if any man hates another man, he is a murderer. And this is not to lower the murder of abortion, but this is to raise the understanding of the wickedness of my driving. Do you understand this? And so the church today is separated into two groups. One group would never speak of abortion. This was a church where the elders absolutely tried to forbid me to ever mention abortion. The main leading elder, every time the word abortion would come up in a sermon of mine, his wife would stand up and parade out of the church in the view of everyone, with everyone knowing why she was parading out of church. Because it shouldn't be brought up. Okay? But then you've got this woman And how do you lead her to the grace of Jesus Christ if you're not going to talk about abortion? How does this woman ever come to Jesus Christ if you hide Ananias and Sapphira back in a back room and and you scurry to take their bodies out when nobody's watching? Do you understand this? It pleased God to have His judgment of Ananias and Sapphira very clear to everyone. And the response was that half the church was unified and the response on the other half was they didn't dare to come near. They didn't dare to come near because they knew that God was holy and that there was a reason for mercy and grace. And it was that we are depraved that we would rather have our daughter finish her nursing training and have enough money to have a nice house and not have our pension plan have to go to her at our old age, but we can, spend our, we can spend our money because our daughter has a good career and she's married to a man who has a good career, and we tell them, delay your marriage until such a time as you have independence financially. And then when we get old, we say to them, I don't want to be a burden on my children. And so we use morphine to kick off.
1: It has nothing
0: to do with Jesus Christ. It's very opposite of anything that Jesus ever taught us. Everything we do as a church of evangelicals today is aimed at trying to blur the distinction between those who know God and who fear Him and love Him. And those who know nothing of God. And so they have sex before marriage... And then when they get married, they don't have babies because babies cost money and I have a career, right? And then when their children grow up, they are not instructed at home because the father's away and the mother's busy, but the home's pretty. It's a nice home, nice. And and, 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 and they do soccer, you know, and, and then they get older and the whole pattern repeats itself and... And as the parents get older, they go in a nursing home because, after all, the mother's too busy to take care of old people. And the ante gets lower and lower and lower, and pretty soon the church is filled with people who don't know God. And then it's the job of the pastor to blur the distinction. So the pastor preaches in such a way that it just sounds so helpful. It's helpful thought for a week. That's how you always think of my sermons, right? I'm glad we got another helpful thought for a week. Okay, have I been helpful so far today? (laughs) That's what I get up every morning thinking. I hope I can be helpful today. And so we go to churches where the preachers lie to us and the elders don't discipline us. They just encourage us. And the older women never tell us to submit to our husbands. And when we get old and it looks like we're going to die in the next couple of weeks, we just keep increasing the morphine dosage so that we'll go into oblivion without too much gasping for air. And what does this have to do with God? Is there any dependence on the Holy Spirit in any of this? Is there any? Why do you need the Holy Spirit if you've got morphine? Now, am I saying you shouldn't use morphine in your old age? No, I'm not saying that. Am I saying that you shouldn't drug pain? No, I'm not saying that. Am I saying that women shouldn't get degrees? No, I'm not saying that. You know, don't turn it into a straw man. What I am saying is that the church is either going to make it clear what the cost of discipleship is and call each other to true faith in Jesus Christ or the church is going to try to hide what the cost of discipleship is and try to get everybody to think that they're going to heaven because then God can make things clear because I'm not God and I don't know you know and the truth is we all know I remember one guy and one woman we had these two these two couples in another church in another state And, uh, um, when Mary Lee and I came into that church, it was very clear that the husband of one of this couple and the wife of the other were committing adultery. All right. And they were at the very center of the church, held all the positions of influence. Uh, you know, they were the center of the church and it was just very clear as soon as we got there that there was adultery going on between one of each of the couples and here I am, 30 years old, wet behind the ears. And these, these couples are leaders in the community and leaders in the church. And it's very clear they're committing adultery, one of, one of each of them, right? And so what do you think? You're a young pastor. You're wet behind the ears. What do you think? Well, what you think is, am I crazy? <laughs> How could I see this? I've been a pastor for one day and I see this. And all these other wise elders and all the, all the other pastors that have been, eh, nobody else in the community has any idea this is going on. You see, you all know it. Everybody knew it. But everybody was committed to blurring the distinction between those who belong to God and those who did not. And so everybody had to deny this was going on because they were leaders of the God people. And so everything about that community was aimed at blurring the distinction between those who knew Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior and those who didn't. So the greatest insult in that community was not to call somebody a druggie or an alky or to say that they like the Packers instead of the Bears because there was a local boy that played for the Bears at that time. The greatest insult was to ask somebody, are you a Christian? And if you asked them if they were a Christian, you know what their response was? Their response inevitably was, well, yes! In other words, what kind of an idiot are you? How could you ask me such an impertinent question? Didn't you know everyone's a Christian? Until along came Donnie Chapman. God bless him. And Donnie Chapman was this fun, fun, fun basketball guard. And uh, I used to watch him play high school basketball. I just loved him. If he lost, he was cheerful. You know, if he got a foul called on him, he'd smile. He was just one of the players that you just love to watch. And one day, Donnie Chapman shows up in church. And, of course, everybody knew Donnie Chapman didn't go to church. Donnie Chapman's parents had Chapman's Bar, and that's where they had the lingerie shows on Friday night. So it wasn't just a bar, but it was low life, right? Johnny Chapman shows up in church one Sunday, but not for worship, but my office to ask me to marry him. And on his arm, he has a woman whose parents never, ever come to church, ever, not even Christmas and Easter, all right? But their names are on the roll of my country church, right? So they're members, but they don't ever come, right? And so there Donnie and his future bride are sitting there, and uh, they asked me to marry him. And so we begin to talk, and after a while, getting to know him, I told him how much I liked watching him play basketball. I loved the kid. I never met him, but I loved him. You know, some athletes are like that, you know. I said to Donnie, so Donnie, uh, are you a Christian? And he says, nah. And I loved him more. And then I turned to the woman he intended to marry. Let's call her Susan, too. And I said, Susan, are you a Christian? She said, well, yes. Yes. And all of a sudden, Donnie, he whoops his face. He says, you ain't a Christian. And she has a hissy fit. Why are you not a Christian? He said, you wouldn't do the things you does if you was a Christian. You see, everybody knows except us. Everybody knows who knows God. Except the church. And then the church hides it, Right? And the Holy Spirit comes into the people of God. And the Holy Spirit gives women full moral agency. Because Sapphira dies. And Ananias dies. And all of a sudden, the meat cleaver comes into the church. And it's very clear who knows God and who doesn't. Because those who know God are more committed to each other, more committed to God, more committed to the unvarnished preaching of the word of God more committed to discipline, more committed to music, to hymns, to praise, more committed to the Lord's Supper. And then there's the other group that is trembling and don't dare to come near. But did you notice what it says? It says, verse 14 excuse me, verse 13, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And isn't that fascinating? So you've got the unity, wonderful unity, and then you have the other people who don't dare to come near, but they have great respect for them. Now, if you have a choice between going to a church where everything's blurred and nobody admits what's going on, Nobody sees adultery. Everybody knows there's adultery. Nobody sees it. Nobody sees abortion. Nobody sees greed. Nobody hears gossip. A church where everything's blurred. Or a church where there's wonderful unity. Wonderful unity. And great fear and respect from the world. Which church do you take? The choice is yours. Which church do you take? The choice is yours. Which church will it be? If you read the New Testament, every single part of the New Testament is intent on raising the ante. Do you understand what I'm saying? Never is the Apostle Paul writing in such a way as to cause things to become blurred. He's not interested in cataracts and glaucoma. Everything he does is aimed at getting 20-20 vision on the part of the people spiritually. And it's not just a function of the Apostle Paul thinking this will be helpful. He even goes on and talks about the motivation of those that are trying to lead them away from God in truth. He says they just want to get followers for themselves. So he even attacks the character of other preachers. Ad hominem attacks. Read Galatians. It's very clear. He uses sarcasm. He uses ridicule. He's tender. He says, I'm your father. I've loved you. He says, with these own hands, I've earned my living." Everything is brought to bear in such a way as to make visible to the people the choice between heaven and hell and between God and Satan. The decision between faith and unbelief. Nothing is American civil religion in the New Testament. Nothing. Except maybe Alexander the metalsmith, Maybe all the idol makers in Ephesus, maybe the the printers and the publishers when the books were burned. Maybe the people that tried to imprison and to kill and to beat and to stone the Apostle Paul. That might have been American civic religion. Do you understand what I'm saying? In other words, the people whose livelihood depended upon blurring the church and causing people to worship idols instead of the true God didn't like the Apostles. But in the church, there was fear of God and love. And in the godly, fear and love embrace. Fear is never antithetical to love. You see this in the relationship of any healthy father-son relationship. That son fears his father and he loves him. And he never has to have this like schizophrenic conversation in his brain. Well, I think I fear him. Well, I think I love him. Well, I can't understand this. How could I fear somebody I love? Now, the son understands that he doesn't love a father that he doesn't fear, and he doesn't fear a father that he doesn't love. Fear and love embrace in the people of God. And so, what is church growth? You see it coming, right? Church growth is done not by how good the band is or whether or not you play the piano or have electronic instruments or how pretty the building is or which part of town it's built in or how old or how young the pastor is or what denomination it is or what its ads look like or whether or not people invite people home for dinner after sunday morning worship what is the technique of church growth well this is the third group look what it says it says some it says they were all Hanging out with each other, unified with one accord in Solomon's portico. So the church was unified. It says, second, none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And then it says, third, all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. So in other words... The believers are unified by church discipline. Ananias Sapphira die, they're all unified. Number two, the unbelievers are kept away and tremble but respect them. And number three, there's a whole bunch of people, tons of them, multitudes of them, whose hearts are led by the Spirit of God to come and to join this first group. In other words, the method of church growth is to purify the church. And then the church grows. And let me tell you, I can personally testify that that is true. And I can also personally testify that everything in my gut and mind and body doesn't believe that's true. So that every single time we as elders start to purify the church, start to correct doctrine, start... To discipline unruly behavior, everything in me says, No, I don't want you to do it. Because we'll get smaller. And then I won't have as big an ego. And I won't be able to tell people at Presbytery meeting how many I run. On Sunday morning, how many of you run? Well, <laughs> Last year it was 250, but this year it's 125. Well, I guess you're unspiritual. I guess you don't know how to preach. I guess you don't prepare. I guess you don't have good breath. I guess you don't know Rick Warren. I guess you're not being invited to speak at the inauguration. I guess you're a failure. You know what the first thing that every pastor says to the other pastors when they get together? So how many do you have coming Sunday morning? Well, you look down on us, but what about you? You're a salesman. What do you say to the other salesmen? Did you get the trip to the Bahamas last year or are you a funky that had to stay home? You made partner yet, Brian? Too bad. So how are, you know, how are your sales? How many children do you have? Oh, your, your daughter was, oh, she's a cheerleader. You know, you read all these Christmas letters. And these Christmas letters are women talking about their sales. Every Christmas letter is a woman parading her accomplishments as a mother and a wife. And the ones that aren't mothers and wives don't write them. Did you notice that? The whole purpose of a Christmas letter is to brag about your children. And so you look down on pastors for bragging about how many people they have coming, and I say, get with it, dude. This is our world. This is how you live. This is how pastors live. Do you expect pastors to be any different? If pastors are trying to blur the distinction between people who know Jesus Christ and people who don't in the church, do you think pastors are trying to make that distinction clear when they get together? You know, you imagine a conversation where the first thing a pastor says to the other one is, well, has anybody died in your worship services recently? Has anybody gotten sick and died because of taking the Lord's Supper unworthily? What have you done to keep your people from dying? Do you have blood on your hands? And it's inconceivable, isn't it? Yet when the Apostle Paul wrote about his ministry, he didn't say how many he was running. What he did was he talked about the fact that he had been faithful to say everything God had told him to say. And then he said, so I don't have any of your blood on my hands. Acts 20, read it. So we come back to our text today and we see what what are the three groups? Number one, there are the Christians who are more unified because of the judgment of God. Number two, there are those who don't know God and they are kept away and they are trembling but they respect the believers. And then we see a third group, and it's more and more, it's multitudes who are attracted and who come to believe in Jesus Christ. And that's that's the fruit of judgment. So, church growth, right? What do we believe in? Do you see that? Verse 12 They were all with one accord, the people who truly believed in Solomon's portico. Verse 13, none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And number three, all the more believers in the Lord. Multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. Okay? Church growth. What do we want? Do we want to grow God's way or do we want to grow man's way? Which do we want? What do we want? Now, obviously, this is actually good news if you think about it, because it means that it doesn't depend on what your breath smells like and how you dress and how young you are as to whether or not people come to Jesus Christ. Because them coming is a work of the Holy Spirit. And so really, this is wonderful news to us because instead of us having to scurry around like busy bees, trying to blur the distinction and trying to act like we're no different than anybody else in this world, now we have the confidence to be completely wacko different. Completely wacko different, all right? We don't have to live in bondage and dress like all the goths. We don't have to pierce ourselves. We don't have to get, you know, tattoos, right? We don't have to be white. We can be black or Hispanic, right? In other words, we don't have to be conformists, trying to fit in with our race and with our ethnic group and with our social class and with our educational attainment level. All of a sudden, we have a new identity, and the new identity is the household of faith, and we're all idiots being taught by the Holy Spirit. Being dependent upon the Holy Spirit's power, and we can be absolute risk takers, not with setting the bar higher and seeing if the pole will take us over, vault us over, you know, not with like taking a really gutsy shot from beyond the three point line, right? The risks we're going to take are the risks of speaking truth, of living holy of being devoted to the assembly, and of trying to bring as many people as we can to the house of God so that they too will believe. And we don't go looking for people who are fraternity dudes that are handsome and sorority chicks that are cute and football captains and whites. But we go looking for those that would make such a spectacle of the power of God You know, (laughs) I mean, think of the person in your life that would make the most spectacle. (laughs) You know, who would it be? You know, you've got a druggie in the family, right? You have a lesbian friend. You have somebody who's into wicked, right? You have somebody who's just nasty. You know, in other words, find the person that the only possible explanation would be the power of the Holy Spirit. You have nothing in common with them. And then you cast yourself on them, you throw the gospel at them, you lead them to Jesus Christ because you know that when God works, all those other things that we used to depend upon for church growth are dead. You expect that it's the very people who are walking into the abortuary to kill their unborn children are the ones who the church will be filled with. You expect that the person that's getting paid to kill the children in there is the one that would make God's glory greatest. Bernard Nathanson leads the movement to get abortion legalized in this country. Runs the largest abortuary in New York City. Is an atheist Jew. (laughs) Sophisticated, urbane, cosmopolitan physician, right? And all of a sudden, one day, they open the pages of the New England Journal of Medicine, and they see an editorial where Bernard Nathanson writes, I have come to believe that I have presided over the death of 75,000 babies. And the whole medical community goes, oh! you know what? Bernard Nathanson writes a book called Aborting America, and he writes it as an atheist Jew. And he exposes abortion in America. If you only read one book on abortion in America, read Aborting America. All right. Talks about the lies that they use to get it legalized. He exposes it from the inside. And then you know what happens? That atheist Jew it takes a few years. You know what's coming, don't you? That atheist Jew is baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Bernard Nathanson. And then the day comes when Bernard Nathanson writes a column excoriating that 10th Presbyterian Presbyterian named C. Everett Coop, now the Surgeon General, because of how unfaithful he is in standing up for human life. God has a sense of humor. <laughs> Search first things for Coop and Nathanson, and you'll find the article. It's one of the funniest articles I've ever read in my life. And C. Everett Coop was our family doctor and a dear Christian man. Listen, people, God is no respecter of persons. Is anything too hard for God? Look at yourself. Look at you sitting here. Is anything too hard for God? A, Marshall? Is anything too hard for God, Marshall? Nothing at all. Let's pray.